Let's read chapter 12 together as, as we begin. So follow along. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to read through the, the whole chapter, so follow along as I read. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, But instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And, And not only that, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son For although you did it secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, While the child was yet alive, we spoke to him. He didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing you've done? You, you fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live? But now he's dead. What should I, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Verse 26, now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, and he said, I fought against Rabbah, moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, David, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and he went to Rabbah and he fought against it and he took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head and the weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he, he brought out the spoil of the city, which was a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and he set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them toil at brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, you, you are the Lord God. You're merciful and you're gracious. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love. You're abounding in faithfulness. You, you keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is, this is who you are. And so, Lord, this morning, we worship you and we find great comfort in your character. But we also know, Lord, that you are holy and just and that you hate, you despise the sin that we so easily commit. And so I pray that as we look at this chapter in David's life, Lord, that you would give us a hatred for our sin and a love for your mercy. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, chapter 12, I, I've broken it down into, into three sections, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in section one. So, so as, as, as I'm going through this first section and you're looking at your clocks, don't, don't be worried because we're going to spend most of the time in section one, and then we're going to speed through sections two and three. But, but here's the three sections. First, we have David's sin and God's mercy, right there in the first 13 verses. David's sin and God's mercy. Then second, we'll look at death and life in David's house. So the consequences of his sin, we're going to see death and life in David's house. Then finally, things return seemingly to normal at the end of the chapter when we see David at war in verses 26 through 31. So that's how we'll work through uh, this chapter. So let's, let's begin there at, at the first point, David's sin and God's mercy. So chapter 12, as, as, as we begin, it picks up right where chapter 11 ended. There doesn't seem to be hardly any passage of time. So remember, we, we mentioned that the end of chapter 11 is the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As chapter 11 closes, chapter 12 picks up and says, so the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's, that's a transition. So, so in light of David's sin, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan to to David. So, so if you remember last chapter, chapter 11, it's David sending. He's sending for, for Bathsheba. He's sending to, to get Uriah. He's sending the letter with Uriah. He's the one sending. Well, chapter 12, the, the roles change. The Lord is the one doing the sending. And the first thing he does is he sends the prophet Nathan to David. And so when he sends a prophet, he sends him with a story. And so, so the prophet Nathan goes with a story. Now, now we as readers, we know the story's not true, and it seems like David should know the story's not true, but, but as it plays out, as Nathan tells the story, David responds as though the story had actually taken place, and he's, he's angry. And David declares judgment on the evil man. So, so David is wrapped up in the events of this story. 
And that's the story that the Lord sent Nathan with. So, so what's the story? He, he tells the story of contrasts. There's two men. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man, Nathan says, was one who had many, not, not many sheep, but many flocks and many herds. And so, so it's an innumerable amount. This rich man, he has all kinds. But there's this poor man, doesn't have many, he doesn't even have one flock. He has one little ewe lamb. And as you read, I, I couldn't relate to this because I'm not a pet person, but maybe you have cats or dogs that you really love. You could relate to this poor man, right? Because he's sleeping with the sheep, right? This companion and, and the sheep is eating out of his, from his plate and out of his cup. And I think gross, but, but that's because I, I'm not a pet person. So those of you that know how much you love pets, which I believe is a genuine love, that's, this was this man's child. He raised this lamb like a child. So this was part of the family, much more than a pet, and so even though this man was poor and only, he lacked a lot of things, one thing he didn't lack was, was a lamb that he loved greatly. That's the one thing he had going for him, this, this little ewe lamb, the, the apple of his eye. And so the story continues in verse 4 as Nathan tells it, One day a traveler comes to a rich man. And the custom in Israel at that time is whenever you have a guest come, you're obligated to, to provide a meal for them, to, to meet their needs, to be hospitable. And so this guest comes to the rich man, and the rich man's obligated to provide. So the rich man, in order to provide a nice meal, he goes across the fence and he takes, he grabs, he snatches, the language that was used last week of David, he snatches the poor man's lamb. He's unwilling to take one of his many flocks and herds. So, so he walks through his field, passing dozens and dozens of sheep, and says, I'm going to go get that one. And he grabs it and takes it. He doesn't take it to, to raise it with his other lambs. He takes it to kill it and serve it. And David, right, clearly not tracking with the similarities between his recent past and the story, right, oblivious to that, David erupts in anger in verse 5. And he says, he swears by the Lord, as, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. because he, So he's going to pay four of his lambs. To this, to this man, because, because that's justice. That's what deserves to happen. And what's not immediately apparent is, is David's suggested retribution, specifically the fourfold repayment of lambs, that is guided by Exodus 22. And this is God's law. If you steal an ox, you pay five more for the ox if you steal and kill it. But a lamb, if you do it, you, you pay four. So, so you can write down Exodus 22 1 because it's right there. And David says, God's law demands that this man pay. Right? There's retribution. So, so David. Is, is, is issuing a judgment. As the king, that's what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to rightly judge Israel, but, and so that's what he's doing. And so the story, he issues this judgment. This man, according to David, did you notice David said he acted without pity? He didn't have any pity. And of course, the irony in all of this is that David himself had just violated God's law. Right? Chapter 11, it's filled with David's transgressions. And, and he had done much worse than to steal and kill a sheep, hadn't he? As one commentator observed, David's own Torah violating behavior had not robbed him of his commitment to impose the requirements of the Torah law on others. So the fact that he had, he had violated didn't, didn't prevent him from saying he has to pay because he violated. I mean, what a hypocrite here in these first verses of chapter 12. Do you see how blind David was in regards to his own sin? He was oblivious to it. This is an Old Testament case of plank eye syndrome. He's oblivious to what he's done. And he says, he better pay because he stole a sheep. 
and killed it. We'll say more about that in a minute. But, but David's so concerned with the speck in this rich man's eye that he cannot see the plank in his own. I mean, as I mentioned, comparing David's offense and this man's offense is, is, a, is a bit like apples to oranges. David's offenses are plural and violate the Big Ten. Right? He, he'd killed and he'd committed adultery. Let's add in coveting his neighbor's wife. There's three offenses of David, of the Ten Commandments. And here he's condemning a sheep stealer to death. But in so doing, David is also condemning himself to death. But David is oblivious here. One commentator says that, that after Nathan tells the story, his sword was an inch within David's conscience before David even knew that Nathan had a sword. So, so, so Nathan's done the work. David has responded how he is supposed to respond. He, is, he, is, he cannot believe the injustice of this act. His moral compass has been checked, and David had judged correctly regarding the rich man and the poor man. And all that's left for Nathan to do is to reveal the real-life identities of the rich and the poor man. And with great courage, as one who speaks on behalf of the Lord, as one who speaks with greater authority than even the great king of Israel, Nathan sticks the sword in, as it were. You are the man, David. You are the man. The man that, that you just sentenced to death, the one that you rightly, by the way, charged as having no pity, the man that your anger was, was so greatly kindled against, David, you're the man. Not in a positive sense. You are that man. I can't help but note the courage of Nathan here. Right? David could have, could have had, done off with his head. Bring me another prophet. Right? That's what Saul would have done. But here Nathan proclaims this truth confidently. You're guilty, David. You're the one. And as Nathan begins laying out the charges that the Lord is making against David... As Nathan is, is relaying the reality behind the parable, it's not really Nathan who's speaking. I mean, Nathan is the one who's, who's speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. So he begins verse 7, Thus says the Lord, David. Just so, just so you're not deceived into thinking this is just me telling you this, this is the Lord who says this. And notice what the Lord says. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you Saul's possessions. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you all of this, David. In other words, I've not been holding out on you. I haven't been skimpy with you, David. I've given you all this. I've given you so much. I mean, David, think about where you were in your father's fields tending sheep. All of this was unimaginable to you back then, but I've given you all of it. You lack nothing, yet you acted as though you lacked, and you took the poor man's sheep, David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, verse 9? To do what is evil in his sight. You've despised the word of the Lord. You've struck down your eye the Hittite. And you've taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And here Nathan gets to the crux of the matter. This is why the Lord sent Nathan to David. Here in verse 9, David is brought face to face with his sin. You despise the word of the Lord. David had violated the clear commandments of the Lord regarding, regarding the Israelites, regarding the king's of the Israelites. He killed Uriah and he took the wife of Uriah. And just in case David would, would pull out a technicality and say, well, technically, Lord, I didn't kill him. The Ammonites did. Right? He ends the charge saying, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Yeah, okay, technically they killed him, but you sent the letter. You're the one who organized it. This is you, David. You despised the word of the Lord. You refused to adhere to the law of the Lord. You took lightly my commands. 
David, you decided that God's law didn't apply to you. And I can imagine upon hearing these words, as, as David listens, he begins to maybe turn bright red, shame and guilt. Maybe he drops his face to the ground, embarrassed to even look at this prophet. Because in this moment, as David is listening, as he's gone through this emotional roller coaster, at this moment, David knows he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's caught. He's exposed. And there's no way for him to escape that verdict. In fact, he himself had just as judge pronounced the verdict. He deserved to die. And in light of his sin, the Lord continues, verses 10 through 12, which, which are tragic verses. And in fact, these verses will set the stage for much of what happens in the rest of 2 Samuel. But, but in light of his sin, the Lord continues with future consequences for David's sin. First, the, the death that entered Uriah's house was now going to be part of David's house. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So did you notice the slight change in the charge from verse 10, here in verse 10 to verse 9? So in verse 9, David despised the word of the Lord. right? But here in verse 10, notice what he says. The short sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised who? Me. You've despised me, David. The point being, you can't separate the word of the Lord and the Lord. You, you can't separate them. To despise one is to despise the other. And so David's house from here on out is going to be filled with death and murder. In fact, we'll see in, in the book of 2 Samuel, the remainder, we're going to see four of David's sons experience premature deaths. I mean, you'll hear the names Am Amnon and Absalom, and, and one's going to kill the other, and Adonijah's going to die. David's sons are going to die. And it's all in accordance with the word from the Lord regarding a, as a consequence of David's sin. But not only death. It's not only death that's going to be part of David's, David's house. Notice this act of adultery. David's sexual sins against another would give rise to sexual sins committed by another against David. So this is kind of a, 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 an eye for an eye mentality. So you killed, death's going to be part of your house, David. You committed adultery, it's going to be part of your house, David. Not only will David's wives be given to David's neighbor, as we'll see as, as it plays out, it's going to be his son. So his wives are going to be publicly given to his wives. It's going to be a public act, not in secret like David. It's going to be worse. It's going to be public, and David's going to be embarrassed and put to shame before all of Israel. And these are tragic verses, as I said, declaring the consequences of David's sin. And these tragic words from the Lord, they come crashing down on David. This combination of, of rebuke, in retribution, they, they begin to crush this king. And a remarkable thing happens. In fact, a miraculous thing happens. David's eyes are opened. He sees. So all of this comes crashing down. Then, then David, his eyes are opened. And he says, oh my God. You're right. You're right. David is exposed, and he does the only thing he can do. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David's eyes are opened. In a remarkable display of humility and contrition, David confessed his guilt in the single most significant dimension of his act. I've sinned against the Lord, David recognizes. Now, of course, David sinned against many more than just the Lord, hadn't he? Imagine Uriah, what would Uriah's family say? Well, well, not just the Lord. He'd sin against more. 
But at the heart of David's sin, which is played out in, in Psalm 51, at the heart of David's sin, as is at the heart of every human sin, yours and mine included, was a rebellion against the Lord. And that's where David goes immediately in his, in his repentance. I've, I've sinned against the Lord. David humbles himself. David owns his own sin, which, which should be a bit shocking to us. This type of response from a, from a public figure regarding his wrongdoing. He's confronted. He says, yeah, guilty as charged. Right? This, this is shocking. We shouldn't mention, miss the nature of this response. I mean, in our world of celebrity apologies, I mean, they're comical. They're filled with nothing but words and nuance and excuses. And often they never include an apology. Have you ever noticed that? This confession of David, in light of his guilt, is different. It's immediate. It's without denial. It's without excuse. If you, if you ever say, I'm sorry, but, right, that, that's not a genuine apology. Husbands, take note. Own it. I'm sorry. Period. That's what David does. I have done wrong. No excuses, right? We, we want to be our own defense lawyers when we confess. David owns it and sets us an example. And it's all, this is the start of true repentance. No excuses, only admission. And, and remember, the hypothetical story that had just been told, when David declared that the rich man deserved to die, as this comparison carries over to real life, when David admits he sinned against the Lord, he's also admitting that he deserves the judgment that he's just pronounced. He's not oblivious to, what, to what's happened to this story and the judgment he declared. So when he says, I've sinned, he's acknowledging that he deserves to die. The judgment, he deserves the judgment he just pronounced. David was defenseless. And in the response of the prophet, we see, we see the mercy of God. How, how quick we can pass over the response. In light of David's sin, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I mean, are these not magnificent words? The Lord has put away your sin, David. You shall not die. Though you deserve to die, David, the Lord has put away your sin. This is what one, one commentator called the turning point of David's life. David would not die because of his sin. And the only reason for this, the only reason, the only reason that David's not going to be forced to die to pay for his sins is because God put it away. God puts it away. God's the one, the only one who can make that decision. Nathan can't make that decision. No one else in Israel can make that decision. The Lord alone can make the decision, and that's the decision that he makes. David, the Lord has put your sin away. And the reason that God chooses to put away David's sin can only be seen in his character. He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. This is who the Lord is. And here in 2 Samuel 12, we see that God is the God who has mercy. If you're not a Christian here this morning, hear that. God has mercy no matter how great your sin, no matter how afraid you are of, of being exposed. God has mercy to those on those who turn to him. And so if you're not a Christian, turn from your sin and turn to God who has mercy in Christ. He has put your sins on another so that you might be forgiven, so that your sins might be dealt with. Because David's sin, they were put away. This was a temporary, this was a temporary agreement. They were put away until at the right time. God had passed over former sins, and at the right time, just the right time, Jesus came and he put on him the iniquities of us all. 
And so David's sins were paid for by Jesus on the cross. And that same offer is open to you. You can be forgiven by Jesus through his death and resurrection. God has mercy. But, but as we continue reading chapter 12, we see that God's mercy and his forgiveness, which is true, David's sins have been forgiven, but this forgiveness does not automatically eliminate all or even any of the consequences of David's sin. Before we go on to the next section, let's stop here. But we're going to see that. The forgiveness of sins does not mean that there's no consequences. We can't confuse those two. We'll say more about that in a second. But here's a few points of application from this first section. First, we see God's merciful rebuke. I mean, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is God's mercy in sending Nathan to David. An experience of God's mercy is often preceded by an experience of God's rebuke or correction or discipline. It's often worse before it gets better. Being exposed or confronted, it's never enjoyable. If you've ever been on the receiving end of godly rebuke, it's not enjoyable. It's often painful. But that's always the first step towards being restored, towards being reconciled. I mean, imagine what becomes of David if the Lord doesn't send the prophet to him. What if the Lord says, okay, I'm going to let David go? David would have just continued, probably covered up in his sin and leading Israel. The Lord won't let him go, right? This is good news, Christian. The Lord will not let you go in your sin forever. And so when you receive rebuke, right, you, you should count that as God's mercy. When you get caught, instead of thinking how dumb you are, think how merciful God is. Be the type of Christian who's not afraid to confront others in their sin. Be the type of Christian. Nathan, be the type of pastor who's not afraid to confront. Because it's always for the other's own good. So so we should lovingly and patiently and graciously confront others in their sin. When we see it, we should speak about it. Ignoring it is the worst possible thing that you could do. Pretending like it's not there. And so be the type of Christian who's not afraid to confront, like the prophet Nathan here. You've been given God's word, and that is the only thing you stand on when you confront. Preferences have no stand in confrontation or rebuke. You can't say, I didn't like the way you looked at me. But when you go with God's word and say, this is a clear violation. Stop. Wake up. That that is the best thing that you could do. So be the type of Christian who's not afraid to confront, but also be the type of Christian who's not afraid of being confronted. You may say, well, no one ever confronts me in my sin. Well, a lot of times we make it known, if you say something to me, I'm going to bring up this whole list of stuff you've done. You better not even think about mentioning that. So, So be the type of Christian who's not afraid of being confronted because, same thing, it's for your own good. Remaining concealed, remaining hidden is, hidden is the worst possible thing that could happen for you. Learn, David is confronted with God's word, and he responds in humility. Yeah, you're right. We should aim to be those type of people that respond to rebuke with humility. Second application, beware of plank eye syndrome. Beware of plank eye syndrome. We must aim to be sensitive to our own sin. 
David's response to the rich man in the story showed just how quick he was to judge other sin. Right? This man stole a sheep. He deserves to die. He was quick to do that while in his own life there were numerous sins. There was a plank that he was ignoring and he was actually happy to ignore in order to point out the speck in the other man's eye. But when confronted with his own sin, David's response was receptive. He was receptive to this divine rebuke. One commentator writes, The state of a man or woman's heart is revealed in their response to the criticism of the word of God. The state of a a man's heart is revealed in his response to the criticism of the word of God. We must beware. Friend, if you're a Christian, you're a sinner also. And God's given you brothers and sisters to help you see your sin. You have a blind spot. Many, I have blind spots. God's given us a body to help show us our blind spots. And so we we ought not be surprised if someone says, I noticed this about you. We have to be thankful. We have to be sensitive to our own sin, aware that we're sinners and sensitive to us. I mean, think about 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says, this is a truth that deserves deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst or the foremost, Paul says. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of your New Testament, says, I'm the worst of sinners. Now, if Paul can identify himself in that way, how much more ought we to be able to identify ourselves in that way? Not despairing, but just real. Because Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. So there's salvation for sinners. That's the good news. We've got to be aware of our own sin. Brother, sister, if you're here and you're Christian, pride is antithetical to the Christian life. Ask your friends, ask those who know you. Am I a proud person? Do I come across as proud? And, and, and listen. Listen to them. Another application, the Godward nature of every sin. The Godward nature of every sin. So this, again, I mentioned it's in Psalm 51. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And here he says, you've, you've, you've scorned the Lord is, is the charge against David. And, and so we just, we just ought to recognize that, that every sin is ultimately against God. I mean, he is the one most offended by every sin. I, we have this tendency, so I don't know if you're like me, but, but as a husband, I have a tendency to want to fix things horizontally immediately. So when the words are out of my mouth that I should not have said to my wife, I think, whoops, I'm sorry. Which, that's good. I'm not saying don't say that. But my tendency is, let me just fix this. And if my gracious wife, which she often does, says, I forgive you. So, so, so she's reconciled. That there's, there's reconciliation there. My, my tendency is then to just move on and forget. My words against my wife were not primarily against her, but against God. The horizontal relationship was off kilter. And that is my primary concern. Let us recognize the Godward nature of every sin. God is always the most offended one by our sin. And then lastly, just briefly from this section, the mercy of God. Just, just maybe go home and meditate on the words, you shall not die. I mean, this is mercy to David, who's felt the full weight of his guilt and his punishment and his penalty. And the prophet of the Lord says, you're not going to die. The Lord's put away your sin. God is merciful. Well, let, let's move on. As we continue reading chapter 12, we see God's mercy and forgiveness do not automatically eliminate all or any of the consequences. So, so yeah, he's been forgiven, but his consequences are going to be played out. So then verses 13 through 20, 14 through 25. So there's the assurance of God's mercy, the promise of pardon for David, 
After confirming that David would not die for his sin, the prophet continues, verse 14, nevertheless, he's there in verse 14, that's why I broke it right there. Nevertheless, the prophet says, verses 14 and following offer the rest of the story. Right? Paul Harvey's rest of the story. This is what happened, but, but let me tell you about the rest of the story. In case David, you, or anyone else would equate divine forgiveness with, with an elimination of consequences, David, you should know that there's going to be consequences for what you've done. And verse 14 communicates that ongoing consequences will be in play in David's life. The, the consequences of David's sin being played out in real time does not negate the forgiveness of his sins. Verse 14 and 15, Nevertheless, because of this deed, that because by this deed you've utterly scorned the, scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan goes home to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and the child became sick. And so the Lord declares to David, the consequences of your sin, because you've utterly scorned the Lord, this son, your son, is going to die. I mean, think about all the promises in 2 Samuel 7 that were made to David regarding his son. And now the Lord says, he's going to die. Because of David's sin, his son would die. And as soon as Nathan leaves and goes home, the newborn baby becomes sick. In verse 16 through 17, David, David, upon hearing the words and then seeing the sick child, he sought the Lord. He fasted and he prayed. He's praying and he's fasting that the Lord might spare the child, that the Lord might be gracious to him, he says later. Nevertheless, on the seventh day, verse 18, on the seventh day, the child dies. Now, this is significant because day eight in that culture is when, when the son would be circumcised and named. Right? This is when he becomes a partaker of the covenant community. In day seven, the child dies. The Lord's word comes to pass. So David, unaware of this death, his servants find out. So David's still fasting and praying, and they're afraid to tell David. They say, he, he, he won't listen to us when the child's alive. What's going to happen when we tell him he's dead? He's gonna, he might hurt himself. He might hurt us. If we tell him that the Lord hasn't answered him, that the Lord hasn't been gracious to him and heard his prayers, what, what, what's David going to do? And so having this, this meeting of, of servants and David sees this secretive discussion going on and he knows immediately what happened. And he asks them point blank, has the child died? Is my son dead? They respond, yes, the child is dead. Look at verse 20. David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And so the death of David's son brings about this drastic change in David's actions, doesn't it? His servants are then confused. They, they notice this change and say, well, well wait a minute. What, what's happening? Why this change, David? What's this thing that you've done? You, you fasted and wept for the child while he's alive, but now that he's dead, you're, you're acting like nothing's, nothing's wrong, nothing's happened. And David says, well, while he was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live? Who knows? Maybe he will. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? What the Lord said has come to pass, and there's no use praying for it now, fasting over it now. I shall go to him, meaning I'm going to die, but, but he can't come back to me. And so that's David's reasoning for his actions, for the drastic changes. The child dies, and David goes on with life. Think about David's response. He, he recognized that the child deserved to die, and even that the Lord said he would die, yet he still sought the Lord and pleaded with the Lord. And I don't think David's wrong in doing this. I think he, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me. And he prays, and I think he's praying by faith, saying, please, please. 
when the Lord doesn't answer and the child does die, David doesn't charge the Lord with being ungracious to him because he recognized this child is going to die because of what I've done. And he deserves to do it because I've done it. So when the child dies, when the word of the Lord comes to pass, David goes on with his life. He doesn't charge the Lord with being ungracious. He recognizes that the Lord may, the Lord is gracious, and he may not let this child die. But when when the child does die, he doesn't say that God's character has changed because it hasn't. He, verse 20, did you notice he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships? He worships. Then verse 24 through 25, after, after losing their first son, David then comforts his wife, Bathsheba. He goes into her, comforts her, and she conceives, and they have a second son. They name him Solomon. Literally, God is his peace. Shalom is part of the root word here for Solomon, peace. And we're told that the Lord loved this child. This is covenantal language. We're getting a a foreshadowing of what's coming for Solomon. We're told that the Lord loved him, and then the Lord sends the prophet again with a much different message this time. He loves this son. He gives the son a second name, Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord wouldn't have been abnormal for a child to have a, a, a royal name and then a, a normal name. So he has two names. And the Lord says, this one is loved of the Lord. You shall call him Jedidiah. And as verses 14 through 25 close, the immediate consequences of David's sin have played out. David lost his son. His sin had great consequences in his life. And, and there's two points of application from this. First, notice sin's substitute. I think we see here there's, there's a substitution made. David deserved to die, but he didn't. Why? Because another died. Now, I'm not going to press too far into this point, but I do think it's worth noting that in David's case, someone died for his sins, and it wasn't him. In this sense, his son was a substitute. And the value of this substitute, that the pain and loss felt by David, is not something that the Christian should go without noting. Right, a father's son, a son was killed so that another might go free. And again, I'm not, I'm not pressing this too far, but I think we do see here the mercy of God in the gospel. That Christianity offers a substitute that you don't have to die because another has. And the only reason that anyone can have sins forgiven is because another has died in your place. This is the gospel of grace. You deserve punishment Another gets punishment. This one deserves life and peace and righteousness, and that's what you give. That's the exchange. And the second thing to to note from this section is that sin has consequences. I mean, be warned. Sin has consequences. There's forgiveness upon your, your repentance of sin. There's free forgiveness offered to those who turn away from sin and trust in Christ. There's forgiveness, but there isn't an elimination of consequences. And so let consequences be a warning for you. Let the the consequences of David's sin aid you in fighting your sin. A great example of this, when I I was in seminary, in in a practical ministry class, the the professor brought in a pastor who had lost his entire family and his entire ministry because of adultery. And so he'd been out of ministry for, for decades, and he comes in, and he scares these young seminary students to death. He tells a story. This is what happened to me. And now I'm working a part-time job at a restaurant because I chose to sin against the Lord. And so these young aspiring pastors, they are filled with fear. And that's a good thing. So long as it keeps them from making the same mistake. 
we ought not to forget that sin has consequences. And so husbands, your unfaithfulness will have consequences. You could lose everything. And in your right mind, you would recognize it's not worth it. It could cost you everything. But it's not just big sins that have consequences. I thought about it, I thought, oh, application to big sins, which big sins do, but it's not just big sins that have consequences. Think about the repetitive nature of small sins. Like demeaning a child over and over and over, over years. Or the way that you treat a coworker or a spouse. Or patterns of internet browsing. Right? Small sins over time destroy just as much, if not more. Relationships are dissolved by small sins. So, what once was a, a, a close, tight-knit relationship, there, there's, there's one offense. There's an ignoring of that offense. Ten years later, you don't even know the person. Right? Small sins have consequences. Small sins can callous your conscience to where the first time you looked at something, you thought, oh, what am I doing here? Time after time after time, you don't give second thought. As we mentioned last week, the nature of sin is to, to, to carry itself out to its nth degree. And so just your lustful thought desires to have you commit adultery. Sin has consequences. Well, th- seems th- things seem to have gotten back to normal after the birth of Solomon, after the birth of the second son. And although th- there will be turmoil, as we'll see in the rest of the second Samuel, there's going to be turmoil with th- within David's house for years to come. Here in chapter 12, we, as we see these, these, this final section, things seem to get back to normal. David gets back to doing what David does best. So, so finally, looking at verses 26 through 31, we, we go all the way back to the battle at Rabbah against the Ammonites, which remember, that was all the way at the beginning of chapter 11. So we're, we're, we've come full circle. Now we're going back to that battle. Lots happened in between, but Joab sends word, and he says, I, I've captured the city. All that's left to do is kind of march the, march the troops in. So David, you better come do it, because if you don't, I'm going to do it, and, and they're going to be singing songs about me. So, so you're the king. You come, lead, lead the troops in, bring everyone else, and, and then, then we will conquer the city. So David does. He goes and he gets every rest of Israel, and he goes. He completes the victory in verse 30. Uh, uh, maybe a problematic verse. They take the crown and place it on David's head. Now, some of your translations may, may use the weight in talent, but, but some of yours may say it weighs 65 to 75 pounds. And so you say, that, that's a big crown. How's, how's David going to wear that crown? I don't, I don't care how many lifts he does, he, he can't do that. Obviously, this, this wasn't a crown. First of all, it's not abnormal for, for this size weight crown in, this, in this, this time. But also, this wasn't a crown to be regularly worn. This was a ceremonial crown. It, it's huge because it marks this is the king of the Ammonites. And so when they conquer it, God gives victory to the Israelites over the Ammonites, and, and the king of Israel receives the crown. It's put on David's head as he had conquered the city. And as the conquering king, David then, as the chapter closes, he places the Ammonites under certain forced labor requirements. He set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. Now some of you, again, there's another translation issue. Some of yours may read, he put them underneath saws and iron picks and iron axes and underneath or through the brick kilns. Maybe some of your translations say that, which, which as you read that, that conveys... David slaughtered the rest of the Ammonites. That, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. That's not the impression that's being given. That's not what David has done. 
David is simply putting these conquered peoples under forced labor requirements. They're, they're building buildings. They're, they're doing things that the conquering king has told them to do. He's not, he's not slaughtering them here. And so with the war with the Ammonites concluded, we began back at the beginning of chapter 11. We now come full circle, end of chapter 12. And although David is victorious, a lot's happened between the beginning of chapter 11 and the end of chapter 12. We've learned something about David, haven't we? We've seen David at his worst, and so we leave chapter 12 differently than we came into chapter 11. We leave chapter 12 being convinced of something we probably should have already known about David, which is that there is no perfect leader in Israel. There is no perfect king in Israel, not even David. They all were flawed, which leaves us with an important idea. Just because David is is God's beloved and chosen king, that, that is who David is, but just because he's Yahweh's beloved and chosen king does not mean that he retains the kingdom by any merit of his own. So the fact that David continues to rule is evidence of God's grace. Yes, even David, even the great king of Israel, is dependent upon the God who has mercy, and so are we. Let's pray as we close.